The average person spends roughly 10,000 days of their adult life working. So this is 10,000 Days, a podcast exploring career journeys and the ways that we can apply that time to make a positive impact in the world. The goal of this podcast is to offer you tools, strategies, and inspiration to reflect on your own career. We have an amazing lineup of guests joining us this season that will help you navigate your journey, design the career that you want, and find the courage to make it happen. Welcome everyone to the 10,000 Days podcast, and thank you again for joining us. I'm Ian Brody here with my co-host, Greg Ogiba, and we have another great guest for our fifth and final episode of the season. His name is Professor Barry Cross from Queen's University where he teaches operation strategy, project and change management. He also is one of those people with their finger on the pulse of the future and what's ahead, which is why we wanted him to come and join us to wrap up the season. And Greg, you know Barry from your student days. That's right, yeah, I do. I was lucky to study under Professor Cross at Queens and he's one of those professors that always seemed to find the right blend of, of expertise and enthusiasm that uh, left the class inspired no matter what the subject was and uh, he always had his door open and, and I love professors like Barry who get into the field because I really really enjoy helping students to learn and to uh, progress in their careers and that's why we asked him to join us on the podcast and when I did he, he didn't hesitate yeah you can tell Barry really enjoys what he does and you know he was happy to share his knowledge with us and hey since you know Barry well I'll let you tell the audience about his background Barry has an undergraduate degree in biology and chemistry from the University of Waterloo and an MBA from Queens, where he is uh, teaching. And he, he actually built his career in the auto parts industry, working for some big companies and traveling all around the world. But at some point, he realized that wasn't sustainable for, for him and his family. So he made a plan to transition to the academic world. Uh, today, he's a best-selling author with a, with a long list of articles and books. And Barry's journey to the academic world is a great one. And in the first part of the interview, he talks about it. He talks about when he realized, hey, I think it's time for, for a change. Yeah, we often have events in our life that you know signify that it might be time for a change, eh? Barry mentions the day his father-in-law showed up at the house and asked Barry's kid in the driveway, where's, where's your dad? Where's Barry? And Barry's son replied, oh, he's in China. When... <laughs> Barry was in the backyard at the time and, and had been home for, for several days. Yeah, I, I think that's a sign. I, yeah. I think that's a sign that at that stage in his life with the, with the young family, uh, he, he needed a change. And it, it was a major change for him. So Barry offers some great insights here. And, and then we switch gears to talk about how COVID has impacted industries and how our career paths have been impacted going forward. Greg, was there anything that really stuck out to you uh, in, in this interview? I think the part that stuck out most was when Barry talks about uh, being comfortable with uncertainty. And it, it is not easy to do, but we agreed that going forward, it's something that's going to be even more important than ever. So overall, I think this was a, a really fun episode and one that, that hopefully leaves all of us thinking more strategically about our career paths. But also with confidence, that, that change is good. For sure. So let's get into it with Professor Barry Cross. Thanks for joining the show, Professor Barry Cross. 
Hey, happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So we already talked about your bio already and, you know, Greg studied under you at, at Queen's uh, Business School, so he knows you well. Uh, but for our listeners, could you give us an idea in your own words of how you've spent your 10,000 days so far? You know, g- good question. And maybe less than a traditional career path uh, during my undergrad degree, which was in uh, science. I was a, I specialized in biology and chemistry. I realized during those four years that I probably wouldn't be a, a good scientist for a, a number of different reasons. I love science, but I wasn't going to be a good scientist. So uh, after I graduated, I kind of bounced around for a year or so before I uh, was fortunate enough to land a, a very interesting job uh, building a new facility and launching that operation with DuPont. And DuPont was moving further downstream towards a customer. There, we we're actually injection molding some trays uh, that were going to go into some meals that were uh, sold by Campbell's and Stouffer's. But that gig lasted basically 18 months before we shut the plant down. And there's obviously a story there for another time. But um, there I was, you know, I was 25 years old. I was, uh, you know, we were shutting down the plant, laying off, you know, the, the full team and trying to figure out what was next. And I still look back at that being one of my most valuable experiences in my career and the type of experience that you truly can't buy or be trained for and just the type of stuff that we learned through that. It was just amazing. Sounds fascinating. I mean, talking about the learning of of the operation side, but then also from a personal side, you know, having difficult conversations and, and things like that, it seems like a really unique experience for a 25 year old, for sure. Well, and learning a whole new field through that process and, you know, something maybe we touch on a bit more later, but, you know, I truly believe that people are going to have three careers at least over the, the span of their working lives. And, you know, for me, that was a pretty, uh, pretty rapid education in the field. And then what happens when maybe things go a little bit sideways on you? Um, from there, we moved on to uh, Auto Systems, which was just an incredible young manufacturing company. We were uh, a large, or we became a, a large provider of auto parts to, um, you know, right to the OEs. And, uh, you know, we were manufacturing in Canada. We grew the business from kind of 80 employees and 20 million in sales to 10 times that, 800 employees and 200 million in sales with operations in three countries by the time I wrapped up there. And uh, then we were purchased in 2002 by Magna. And that was at the time the original shareholders for Auto Systems were basically going to hang it up, wanted to retire and perfectly justifiable and appropriate for them at that time. And they said, well, you know, Magna's the next step for that organization. And uh, I, I spent four years with Magna, global powerhouse in automotive parts and Left there in 2006 to join Queens in the business school as a professor and uh, been 16 years now and I haven't looked back since. So switching from the, you know, the successful career in, in, in the automotive industry for, with auto systems and, and Magna, what were some of the triggers or what was the planning like in making that transition to, uh, to academia? <laughs> well, there's a couple of things going on at the time. One, and, and quite honestly, and people familiar with the industry at the time will be aware of this as well, but, but automotive was kind of an ugly place to work there for a few years. Uh, none of the OEs were making money. Uh, it was a couple of years after that where, uh, you know, the CEOs of the big three flew to Washington with their hands out, you know, looking for a bailout package. But through that period of time, they're, they're really, you know, beating up on suppliers for every last dime, every last nickel, a highly competitive environment. And, uh, 
through that period of time though, we were doing some pretty interesting stuff. Um, and, and that interesting stuff took me to places like China and Mexico and Europe and working with great companies like Aston Martin and, and others. Um, through that, that whole evolution though, I, I realized that quite often it felt like the, the tail wagging the dog, so to speak, you know, we were kind of just reacting and all the travel and all of the launches and everything else that we're going through, it just felt, uh, you know, like we were in less control of our destiny and that got to be, you know, somewhat uncomfortable uh, for anybody in, inside of that field at that time. And it's when I kind of started to think, you know, there's got to be something else. Uh, more importantly at the time, my kids were growing up and, you know, a young family, um, my, my daughter was 10, my son was six. And uh, I, I remember coming back from a trip and I was out in the backyard. I was working away at something or other. I forget what it was. And my, my father-in-law dropped by and he asked where I was. My son was out in the driveway kind of scooting around. And uh, he, he said, well, where's your dad? And my son said, well, he's over in China. <laughs> so, you know, I'd been back for a few days, but you know, it, it's just when you start to hear something like that, you say, okay, I'm, I'm away way too much here. And yeah. uh, I was missing out on stuff. And I said, you know what, we'll, we'll find some way to, to reground and to find something that's going to have me focused, you know, hmm. with more time on these guys and, and more time in the local area. You, you were saying the word we quite a bit, and I wasn't too sure, you know, in, in talking about your transitions and I wasn't too sure if you were referring to colleagues or, or, or family. And I think you just answered my question. Yeah, that and I've probably got multiple personalities as well. But, there's... <laughs> so, but yeah, you know, it, you look at what's most important and how much money do you need and, and how much call it uh, of that type of career success and when you want to start building something again. And, you know, I was moving into call it a, a fresh field that I've never really done anything in. And, uh, you know, one side of it's a little bit ego and, and believing that yeah, I can succeed at that as well and obviously found a way to do that. So Barry, moving into that, the new field, into the academic life, how did you prepare for it? And did you know what you were, you were getting into? Uh, not even a little bit. Um, <laughs> you know, my MBA was early 1990s and the field had obviously changed substantially um, to the point where, you know, back when I was a student, professors had a, a stack of overhead transparencies and talked from the front of the room and you know, messed up the chalkboard a little bit. And, you know, we took feverish notes in the back of the room. The odd person had a laptop boy, that was cool, right? So, and to a different world where it's, it's all very much wired and uh, dialed in as part of that process. I'd done some uh, guest speaking engagements with uh, one of the profs that I'd remained connected with at Queens, just a wonderful man and an amazing professor and a, call it a pillar of the university. His name is John Gordon. And uh, he'd had me back in his ops class uh, speaking a few times over the years. And I, I truly enjoyed it. You know, I enjoyed connecting with the students and telling them some stories and, you know, how it works out there in real life. And, you know, that really resonated for me. So when I basically said, you know, it's time to move on from industry, I had a chat with John and he said, well, you know, uh, he's slowing down at the time. And, um, you know, we're looking for, you know, some people to pick up a couple of courses. And he basically just nudged the door open a little bit. And, uh, you know, the rest is history. It's certainly a common theme with this 10,000 day lens, you know, navigating change, especially during a global pandemic. And I heard you give a talk on the new normal, and this was about a year ago now. So I guess it's just the normal now, but during the talk, you referred to a concept called the punctuated equilibrium, which I understand to be the concept that change happens in short bursts in short amounts of time, 
through catalysts, so things like a global pandemic. I'm just wondering if you can expand on that concept in the context of the career. Ian, the uh, the talk a year ago was based on some research that I'd done, um, which was based on you know some other pretty amazing research by a guy called Stephen Gould, and he was the guy that coined the phrase "punctuated equilibrium." And what he was doing is basically offering an alternative view of evolution over you know the last number of million years, uh, so to speak. And, and everybody's familiar with with Darwinism and and you know, the, this whole, uh, what we call gradualism or survival of the fittest through natural selection and that type of thing. And when you start to translate that back to a, call it business world, you realize that more than the fittest survive. And there's a lot of what I'll refer to as mediocre organizations out there. And, you know, these are the ones that kind of survive because of uh, economic conditions or demographics or the fact that for example, in the last 10 years, the population in North America has gone up by 25 million people. So some of these businesses are busy just because of demographics. And that may feel like a bit of a, an exaggeration, but it's really not much of one. So what Gould is suggesting is that every once in a while, there is these events or discontinuities. And, um, you know, there's been five or six of them, you know, these extinction level events through history, when you look at the overall development of the planet and our species, so to speak. Well, there, there's some of those also within the business world that basically disrupt, call it the normal operating conditions under which we work. The pandemic's obviously one. It, it's been a significant one. And, and what happens during these discontinuities is that a lot of those mediocre players uh, become extinct, right? They, they are no longer able to operate in the challenged environment that they find themselves. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's been a number of these things and some of them are still going on. Uh, Technology has been a big one in, in uh, you know, the last 10 or 20 years with uh, the onset of online retail and e-commerce and things like that. But 100 years ago, you had technology making, call it uh, the horse transportation industry extinct. And we moved to cars and automobiles. And then there's public sentiment concerns with smoking and health focus and uh, the carbon effects on our environment. These are public sentiment discontinuities that are changing the way that businesses are forced to operate. And then obviously the, the effects of the pandemic. So these are you know, some of those discontinuities that are forcing organizations to either adapt to what those new conditions look like, whatever that new normal is, or you know, they're not going to stick around. And, and it kind of eliminates some of the opportunity for some of the, you know, those mediocre players to hang around the way they have been. Mm -hmm. And there was a graphic in that talk that you gave where you had the words, my plan with, you know, a flat line point A to point B walk to the finish line. And then you had the word reality and the person's going up and down mountains and, and so on. And there's lots of metaphors we can use in terms of that mountain. If he's on the wrong mountain, or if that mountain is in fact a volcano ready to erupt, but my question is, how does a young professional navigate and embrace the realities and those discontinuities that, that you talk about? Such an important question. Um, interesting, some, some context. And uh, yeah, the graphic you referred to, it's essentially, uh, 
the idea that my plan is to get from A to B and, you know, as you alluded to, kind of a flat line or a straight course or a straight path for us to get there. Therefore, it seems to be navigable and something that we can just manage day to day and we're going to get there. Well, there's an old military adage, right? No plan survives contact with the enemy. And, and in reality, that path is not a straight line. You're climbing mountains, you're swimming fjords, you're kind of there's so many obstacles between here and there, especially if the plan is worthwhile, especially if there's something interesting at the end of the path. You know, if it is a straight line, it's probably too easy and not worth your time. So I guess my assumption is, you know, you talked about volcanoes. I just assume that all the hills are volcanoes. And that sounds incredibly paranoid, but that's the way that I believe that you've got to look at it. And what that means is that as part of the process, of kind of charting my own path, whatever that looks like from, from A to B or from here to there is I'm going to basically build in some elements of risk management, all right? What are some of the gaps that I have to fill? What are some skills I have to pick up? What are resources that I'm going to need along the way? You know, going back to that 06 transition to academia, you know, we needed to have a certain level of financial security to be able to pull that off, you know, and all the other adjustments associated with it. So that, you know, some of this is, is risk management and just understanding who I've got in my network and what this is going to look like. And then part of the process is also just having some, a pretty high level of confidence in your own ability to be able to react to some of those minor eruptions that are kind of getting in your way along, along that path. Um, you know, but to, to your tertiary question associated with what does this look like for people within their career? You know, if you're not happy, you know, if, if their current position is not really creating that value, if you're not getting up in the morning and being excited about what you've got on top that day, then, you know, this is when, you know, maybe it's time for a little self-reflection. Is it just a temporary scenario? Is it something changing? You know, is call it the effects of the pandemic on this particular work environment. Can I expect it realistically to be over and, four to six months? Or is it really the type of work that I'm doing right now that is no longer motivating me than they're the way that I would have expected it to at this stage? In which case, that's worth having a conversation. That's worth kind of digging into a little bit deeper. And you know what? We're not trees. Our, our roots are not holding us into that particular position, organization, even field. And like I said, we're going we're gonna to circle back to two or three different careers over our lives and Maybe it's time to start thinking about what that next one looks like. Mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, great answers. And, and you touched on some, some things that we're going to get to in a bit, skills, uh, networks. But I want to come back to our, our mountain climber friend on the reality <laughs> graph. Ian mentioned how do, if you're on the wrong mountain. And how do you know if you're on the wrong mountain? And if you are, is that necessarily a bad thing? Well, and that's interesting because I, as part of those, those three careers, um, as, as part of your 10,000 day uh, journey that you've referred to, um, this is you learning, this is you doing something very different than maybe you've started out doing. All we've really demonstrated with our undergraduate degree is the ability to learn. And people forget about that. They say, well, you know, I'm an accountant or I'm a, a biologist or I'm a, an urban planner, whatever that is. Well, you are right now but you've also demonstrated in, and if nothing else, proven to yourself the ability to learn an entire field. And people forget about that. So whatever mountain they're on at this point, that 
I have no doubt that that people, when they realize it, and when when they look back at the the skills that they've developed, they'll appreciate that some of those skills are problem solving, right? And working in complex or ambiguous environments and finding a way to kind of say, okay, how am I going to solve this problem? This is just another problem, and I'm going to find a way to work through it. I've got my family, my friends, whatever you know, within my network to bounce some ideas by. But uh, I have no doubt that we're going to be able to get through this. And and the neat part of that too is that. So many people avoid those, those hills and mountains that if I find a way to navigate this one, there's going to be some opportunities through that process that may lead to whatever that next career looks like or that opportunity for my organization to, to find new ways to create value. We're solving problems here. And on one hand, you can say, well, somebody's probably solved this problem before, but that's not always the case. You know, they're not looking at it through our lens and, and that's going to create some opportunities for us. Keeping that futurist sort of lens on, what are some of the skills, you know, we talk a lot about adaptability, um, the ability to reframe failure is one that we've talked about. What are some of the skills or traits that really stand out at, at the career level, um, thinking post-COVID? Well, I, some of this, I'll, I'll think about myself for a second and, and see what's helped me along the way. And in other cases, I'll... I'll maybe put my, my professor or mentor hat on and think on behalf of w- what I'd want for my students right now. But, but first and foremost, for me, I, I really think that there is, you know, one of the things that's helped me be successful is a, the fact that I'm very pragmatic and whatever it is that we've got in front of us right now, you, you may spend a few minutes being emotional about it, but then you've got to kind of hunker down and say, okay, well, this is where we are and, and how do we kind of work forward to, to dealing with what we've got in front of us. If we shift that over to, um, you know, our students right now, one of the things, and, and Greg may remember some of this, but one of the things that kind of still bugs me as a professor is the fact that, you know, we're, we're less comfortable with ambiguity than we ought to be really as a species. And what I mean by that is students on a fairly regular basis are taking the stance that we need to be very clear and, and tell them exactly what we're expecting as a professor and you know follow this rubric to the t and that's what we call level four thinking and you're going to get an a plus well you know what real life doesn't work like that so we've got to we've got to be comfortable uh with that ambiguity in our environments and and not having a a clear path to a solution and saying uh what does that mean all right so what what are the goals what problem am i solving that's one of my favorite sayings from a a colleague at Queens, Ken Wong, he, he keeps referring back to, you know, what problem are you trying to solve right now? And I love that. And the more we focus on understanding the problem, then the more we're able to shape and get comfortable with the elements associated with the problem and then work in that ambiguous environment. People have to be able to do that, especially when we're talking innovation and creativity, and whatever's next. Mm-hmm. Switching gears a bit, Barry, you know, in, in an article you wrote several years ago, about the downfall and the closure of, of Sears. I remember you saying that, you know, their, their strategy to serve everyone really led to them essentially serving to no one. In that same vein, in the career context, do you think it's better to be a generalist or a specialist? Fair question. Uh, I, I think as an organization, you know, if I put myself back and I call it the leadership within the organization, I want both. I want people who are 
specialists in particular fields. I want engineers and scientists and accountants and people who are good at finance. And I want some other people, you know, leading various areas who are more generalists. Our earlier discussion, you know, when I, I realized I wasn't going to be a great scientist is because I myself am very much a generalist, whereas scientists tend to be, you know, incredibly focused on their area of expertise and able to, you know, commit long hours to, you know, 25 iterations of a test and that type of thing. And I don't have that kind of patience. So more important than is a generalist or a specialist better is realizing which one you are. And I think, you know, there's no downside for anybody, any of your listeners, any of the people working out there or getting close to being uh, in a position where they're working is you know, just that whole know thyself uh, type discussion and, and be comfortable with the skin you're in. Yeah. And organizations will always be looking for both and, and feel comfortable in that and, and know that, you know, if I'm truly a, a data and analytics type individual and I really get geeked up about those algorithms and an R squared and everything like that. That's great, right? Organizations need those people. Mm -hmm. Whereas other people who want to understand a little bit about marketing and that's focused on customer enthusiasm, find new ways to create value from a more of a generalist perspective, right? That's outstanding. In terms of building, you know, the success you've had in your career and for spotting you know, new opportunities or new things that interest you, how important is your network? How has it been? How have you used it? And then post-COVID, do you, do you envision it's going to be more important for, for young professionals to, to nurture and to, and to build a healthy, robust network? I, I think it is, um, with a bit of a caveat that I'll talk about in just a second. You know, it, it still is very much a who you know type world out there. And some of the opportunities that are available are only going to be visible to people who are somewhat connected within a particular space, whatever that is. And I look back and, and some of, you know, the doors that have been opened for me have been because I've, you know, got to know different individuals or through relationships or friendships or, or, or whatever or, over the years. And I don't think that's a problem anymore. And I think there used to be, uh, you know, some stigma associated with that or people that, that would frown on it, uh, you know, and that whole who you know mindset. But if somebody's willing to refer you or to connect you with somebody, then they must have some level of respect for you as well. So I, I, I think that's something that people need to keep exploiting, uh, keep building the network, but make sure it's two way as well. You're not just looking for connections, um, help people understand as you're connecting what's in it for them and, and why you're interested. I get so many LinkedIn requests that are just basically, you know, the, the connect, connect, somebody's pushing the button and, and they're all kind of the same. Whereas, you know, when I start to, when I read one and somebody's actually taking the time to, you know, tell me why this connection is important um, or, or how they heard of me or where they found me or who referred me, whatever, I think that's awesome, right? Hey, uh, you know, I came through this area and I love connecting with people like that and I want to know more about them. Um, so th this is a two-way street, a two-way process for people to, um, to think about if they're going to rely on that going forward. Now, the flip side of this, and this is more of a call it current, I believe, evolution in that process is that organizations have become very, very cautious with call it connected referrals and call it the bias associated with that. And they're, they're working harder than they used to, I believe, 
in making sure that these people are coming through a true arm's length uh, recruiting process, you know, no favors, no connections, that sort of thing. So on one hand, I, I think that's appropriate in what we'll call a fair world. And yet on the other hand, I think we're maybe missing out on some of the opportunities by, you know, the person making that original referral is probably doing so because they think there's going to be a very positive fit for us. I agree with you. I think the, I think the network is important for young professionals who are trying to figure out what the next step for their career is. I always tell them when they reach out to me, I tell them, well, you need to, you need to understand what you're looking for. And some of those informal coffees, you know, when somebody reaches out to me and says, Hey, I'm just curious, you know, how, what you've done in your career, do you have 15 minutes for me just to learn a bit more? Mm-hmm. I think that's really important for young professionals to take that initiative, be proactive and just learn as much as they can informally about different industries, different professions, different roles. Oh, it's such a, a scary process for them. Uh, a scary consideration initially to make that first, you know, call it cold call or co- cold contact. And think about it. So many of these people grew up basically connected to devices and communicating through texts. And I'm not, I'm not complaining or, or diminishing that at all, but you know, those face-to-face and those telephone conversations are potentially terrifying if they haven't done a lot of it uh, through their, call it the development years early on. Earlier in the conversation, you referred to ambiguity and how we all need to be more comfortable with it. And I, I agree with you, but I also recognize that for many, that uncertainty is scary. So how does a young professional looking to make a change find the courage to take a risk and to take that next step? It's, it's less dramatic now, I, I think, than it used to be. It's interesting when I talk to my undergrad students and, and I I, I show them a couple of different models and I connect uh, what we'll call uh, employee loyalty and employee enthusiasm to customer satisfaction. We, we highlight through the discussion just how important it is for an organization to have employees who are engaged and contributing and, in fact, loyal to some level. And then we ask them, you know, as part of a blind survey, how long do you plan to spend with your first employer? And the most common answer is somewhere between two and three years. And when you reconnect them back to the whole loyalty factor and the effect that could potentially have on customer enthusiasm. You see some kind of sheepish grins around the room, but yeah, I'm still thinking about leaving. Um, Changing jobs and changing careers is one of the three most stressful decisions we ever make in our lives, you know, or events, excuse me. And one of them is getting married. One of them is buying a house and third is changing jobs and careers. And, And people realize I've got it maybe pretty good here. It's not so bad. I'm with a good group of people. We're making pretty decent money. And people start to, as you point out, get relatively comfortable where they are. And then that big decision gets to be seemingly insurmountable, far more difficult for people to make than maybe they considered back while they're doing their earlier studies. So so where does the courage come from? Um, Again, I I just encourage people to take a step back again and just look at what you've already done and and look at how you adapted when you're 18 years old and and jumping into your undergrad in a different city in a different environment and succeeding over those four years. And and for those of the people in the room who've done advanced studies and graduate programs and, and the same kind of thing, you know, we're engaging in change all the time. You know, this recent discontinuity with the pandemic is just another one of them. And in fact, there's a piece of research out there that I refer to sometimes. It's called the um, habit discontinuity model. And essentially what it says is the best time for change is when people are already changing. 
<laughs> and it sounds kind of obvious, but you know, when you've got an organization or a team or an individual who's already adapting to some other element within their lives or careers or workplaces, that's the time to pile on more change because you know, our brains are already open to the concept. We're already a little more re relaxed. We're already engaging in some of those change events. And that just makes it a little bit easier. So right now, right, is when people should be listening to what you talk about, you know, listening to your podcast, engaging with your organization, because they're already undergoing so much other change. Right? Now's the time when they should be thinking about what's next. Well, it's great input, Barry, and it's it's one of the reasons why Greg and I wanted to do this podcast, I think, in, in the first place. Um, before we let you go, for our listeners tuning in and, you know, really reflecting on their career, maybe considering a change, what is the one big piece of advice that you'd want to leave them with? Um, two things, and, and very good question. Number one, it is certainly okay to pivot, and... I alluded to the discussion around guidance counselors and the high school decision we're all making when we're kind of 17 years old. What do you want to do for the rest of your life? And yeah, we've invested, you know, in today's dollars, $80,000 or something in a, an undergrad degree. And we've spent four plus years of our lives committing to a particular direction. You get your first job in that field. But you know what? Now you're, say, 23, 24 years old. You spent a couple of years in it. and Maybe you're not enjoying. And that's just fine. And we learn this about ourselves and, you know, it's, it's a big decision at that point, but we shouldn't be shy about the fact that that may not be the best decision for me anymore. At the time, it was great. I'm interested in the subject matter. I've done fine and done very well through that process, but I'm ready for kind of the next thing. So don't feel bad about that. That's just, that's a part of our learning process and a, a natural element of the fact that we're making these call it life and career choices when we're 17. Um, the second part of that is that, you know, some of the most successful things that I've been part of over the years have been perceivably pretty risky. And I just mean from a career standpoint and basically stopping say in industry where I was, you know, very successful and doing a lot of interesting things to basically trying something brand new. Um, you know, leaving science and something that I was familiar with in my undergrad to basically jump into manufacturing. These are decisions that are, again, stressful, but, you know, those are potentially opening the next chapter in our lives. And it's something that we shouldn't be shy about considering. Well, Barry, it was great to have you on the show. It was amazing insights and, and a great way to wrap up our first season. So thanks again. Hey, truly my pleasure. Had a lot of fun. Thank you. Just like being back in the classroom. After a seven-year hiatus. <laughs> well, you know, and these are good questions and all incredibly important right now. And, and hopefully you've got a, you know, an engaged group of, you know, listeners out there. And this, if nothing else, it makes them think. I think that's terrific. Thanks again to you, the listeners, for joining us on season one of 10,000 Days. And thank you again to our guests who made this season so fun and insightful. Yeah, this was a lot of fun in preparing for each guest and, and producing the podcast with you has been a great experience. And to the listeners, I hope we made some impact in your path. If so, please drop us a note. We'd love to hear from you. And as Professor Barry Cross just said, quote, if nothing else, we hope it makes you think. This has been the 10,000 Days Podcast. We'll see you soon.